0: Welcome to the Podcast of Ideas, I'm Rob Lyons. In this edition, I talk to free speech campaigner Greg Lukianoff about why college campuses, once a haven for free thinking, have embraced censorship and undermined academic freedom. We get a taste of a new institute initiative, University in One Day, with a short lecture by Sebastian Morello on Pico della Mirandola's Renaissance landmark text, Oration on the Dignity of Man. And Nadia Butt gives us the lowdown and the highlights from the national final of Debating Matters. But first the news, and I'm joined by my colleagues Adam Rawcliffe and David Bowden to discuss various items that have caught their attention in the past couple of weeks. Adam, would you like to start?
1: As many of you may know by now, fracking was rejected in sites on Preston New Road last week. It was rejected on the grounds of noise traffic and aesthetic disruption, probably because the environmental case had fallen apart pretty much been found that it doesn't pollute groundwater uh so these are quite odd things to reject fracking for professional planners had said that these things uh weren't going to be too much of a concern so the council went against the advice of the government's professional planners and i think it's rather odd that local councils can make decisions as grand as this based on nothing other than the concerns of people who seem to be enacting a hippie revival outside. Uh, So I think it's quite disappointing really that Lancashire's rejected this opportunity I think saying there was going to be a European energy centre is a bit overstated but it's definitely a chance for economic growth and jobs in an area which needs it quite badly Uh, and it also makes all the talk of a northern powerhouse seem far from the mark if we don't want any industry.
0: The story that I picked up on is the decision to go ahead with the prosecution of Lord Greville Janner. There's been a number of allegations made against the former Labour MP that he abused young boys back in the 70s and 80s. And it had originally been decided that because Janna is now suffering from dementia, that the, he would not... Be facing a trial because he simply wasn't going to be capable of understanding the proceedings. Well, that decision by the Director of Public Prosecutions, Alison Saunders, has now been uh, reviewed by an outside QC and it has been decided to proceed with the case after all. So the case will now be examined at Westminster Magistrates Court next month. And the odd thing about this is that none of the circumstances have changed. Nobody seems to be saying that Janna is, in fact, capable of understanding the proceedings. So all of this trial would amount to is literally hearing the evidence from his accusers, but without any possibility of Janna being able to cross-examine them or to mount a defence against what's being said. And this really shows just how much the criminal justice process is now being taken over by a kind of therapeutic impulse, that the idea now is not to establish the the rights and wrongs, who did something or didn't do something, it's very much about giving victims an opportunity to air their case in public, to have their day in court, and I don't think that that's a very, very sensible way forward for criminal justice, it is about trying to disclose these objective truths. And if we diminish that process by turning it into a form of therapy for people, then I think that that will actually uh, undermine all our basic rights. Somebody should only be tried if they can understand the proceedings and, and mount a defence to them. And it's clear that in Janna's case, that's not true. David?
2: Well, the story that I've picked up on has been in the wake of the awful tragedy in Tunisia with the terrorist attack acting under the banner of Islamic State. David Cameron announced his big strategy for dealing with the Islamic State which is not to call them the Islamic State arguing of course that they are not particularly representative of Islam and to do so creates a divisive attitude towards Muslims in the UK and they should be referred to purely as ISIS. Obviously one of the big problems with this is that they don't call themselves ISIS generally, they call themselves Islamic State, that is the the name that this group gives to themselves. It's also true that they are acting in the name of Islam, not a form of Islam that is recognisable to virtually any Muslim in the modern era, but they are following creeds of medieval Islam, and so they are, they are acting in the process of it. And it sort of just resembles this Really strange attitude around fussing over o- over the names and that kind of quite a lily-livered response to the overall problem, that this is about what we call them and the question of how we deal with the lure of ISIS at home, rather than providing any kind of real response in terms of standing up for British values. The few things they are doing in terms of trying to tackle the sort of threat of homegrown extremism seems to be the biggest betrayal of British values that they can come up with in terms of demanding more and more spying powers, more and more infringements on civil liberties and religious tolerance while at the same time making these kind of grandstanding very PC sounding uh, moves to say that oh we can't call this terrorist group what they call themselves as if we are all so you know, stupid and backward, that we will just automatically assume something, calling themselves the Islamic State, must be the voice of all Muslims everywhere. It must be the voice of Islam, as opposed to a particular branch of it pushing a particular ideology, which is reprehensible and engaged in the mass slaughter of Muslims in the Middle East and elsewhere. So it just seems to me part of the kind of really fantasy world of what's going on in in terms of the issues of how we deal with the very difficult topic of ISIS, radicalisation and Middle Eastern policies.
0: The issues of free speech and academic freedom are featured regularly on this podcast. Never a week goes by without horror stories of rights being restricted or an academic being disciplined for making a comment which is regarded as beyond the pale in these politically correct times. Someone who's been at the forefront of campaigning on both these issues is Greg Lukianoff, President and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE. Greg is currently in the UK to discuss the problem of censorship on campus, and I'm very glad he's found time to come and talk to us. Morning, Greg. Uh, Good morning. So, for our British listeners, what is FIRE and how did it come about?
3: Uh, FIRE stands for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and it was founded back in 1999 uh, by Harvey Silverglate, who is a left-leaning libertarian ACLU person, uh, who's a a lawyer who's an adjunct professor at Harvard, and Alan Charles Kors, who's a scholar of the Enlightenment, at University of Pennsylvania. Um, and they started noticing in the 1980s that increasingly students were getting in trouble for not what they did, but what they said. So they wrote a book called The Shadow University in 1998, exposing speech codes on campus, due process violations, absurd cases of students getting in trouble for what they said. And uh, they thought, they, they sort of hoped that that would end the problem, you know, this, this stunning expose um, yeah. would, 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 would solve it. But instead, and somewhat predictably now, uh, they started receiving thousands of requests for help. And in the wake of that, they founded FIRE back in 1999.
0: I know that a lot of free speech opponents in the UK Mm -hmm. say that, well, you know, campus is supposed to be this kind of slightly shuttered off world. It's good to have students who are vulnerable, who can have these free, safe spaces to just be who they are and not have to deal with all these kind of political discussion. Right. So why does free speech on campus matter so much?
3: Wow, it, it, it's just so dis- uh, distressing to hear you say that, but I think you've encapsulated the problem uh, right there. When I was a kid, uh, it was taken for granted that uh, even with America's strong protections of free speech in the First Amendment, that the place where it was supposed to be the most radically free and, and in that sense I, I accepting fully the most upsetting, the most challenging environment um, in the entire country was supposed to be campuses. And that is an idea that that, that won over hearts and minds the 1960s and 70s during the free speech movement uh, on, on college campuses. Because it makes sense. If, if you want to challenge the gods, it doesn't mean that everything is going to be necessarily nice or pleasant. If you want to challenge society, that means you, you, you shouldn't be restricted using only polite. Language to do that. And something has happened in the past uh, decade or so, actually, more two or three decades where the expectation has been completely flipped that campuses are supposed to be places that protect students from speech. So I, I wrote a book you know, that encapsulates what I think about it called Freedom From Speech, because I think that's what students today have been taught to expect from campuses. And that's perfectly fine if we wanna run kindergartens. If we want things to be centers of innovation and deep thinking and challenging, at which universities are really the only place in society that we have that are supposed to do that, we can't have a, a therapeutic environment in which uh, the, uh, any student who claims that something has hurt their feelings can immediately shut down meaningful debate and discussion.
0: Uh, how widespread is this desire to, to, to shut things down? I mean, we heard these high-profile comments by Jerry Seinfeld yeah. and also quoting Chris Rock saying, you know, they wouldn't play university anymore. They're, they're too politically correct. Does that represent just a tiny minority on campus, or is this a widespread expectation that certain things shouldn't be allowed?
3: Well, two things. The Jerry Seinfeld comment and the Chris Rock comment seemed really well-timed for a project I've been working on for literally years. Uh, Back when my first book came out called Unlearning Liberty, back in 2012... For whatever reason, the person who runs the Comedy Cellar um, in New York City uh, invited me on to a podcast, and the most the uh, self-proclaimed liberal member of the, of the panel, the comedy panel, because it's supposed to be a comedy show, even he said he doesn't like playing campuses anymore. So this was years ago. So this gave me an idea of making a documentary about this and talking to leading comedians across the U.S. about what they think about what's going on on campuses. And, you know, we have Lisa Lampanelli. We have Gilbert Gottfried. We have Jim Norton, who's really famous famous among, uh, among comedians, Penn Jillette, um, Adam Carolla, Kareth Foster, who, who not everyone knows but should, talking about the stifling um, environment on campuses. So it's not just Jerry Seinfeld. It's not just Chris Rock. So we talk about how uh, Lenny Bruce uh, wouldn't last for a second today. And so the, this video, this documentary, which we've spent a lot of time and energy on, is coming out uh, later this year. So we're very excited, uh, excited about that. And so the question is, how widespread is it? I... Went to law school specifically to study the American First Amendment, and actually not only the American First Amendment, I studied the origins of our ideas about censorship and free speech from Britain. So I, I covered uh, the print licensing system that started under Henry VIII and, and went through uh, through the Tudors and then through the Stuarts. You know, by the time Milton was writing it and about it in 1644, it had actually been around for over 100 years. And I've been studying this uh, internationally. Then I worked for the ACLU of Northern California. Uh, I took every class that Stanford offered on on freedom of speech. And nonetheless, I was absolutely shocked on how easy it is to get in trouble on the modern campus. And I will say that as of my, uh, my, my first book on learning liberty, I thought things were getting a little bit, quote unquote, better just in the sense that the censorship seemed to be becoming a little bit less ideological and more old-fashioned in the sense of don't-you-dare-criticize-the-university type censorship. You know, the same thing was happening in the 1950s and 1930s. But something has happened in the last two years, and I don't know exactly what... But the demands for being protected from speech are coming from students uh, at at a louder pitch than I've ever seen in my career. And this breaks my heart because I've spent my entire career defending the rights of students. And now they seem to be demanding to be protected from words. The
0: comedy thing just strikes me as really weird because on one hand you'll have this... Mm -hmm. Uh, worry about political correctness, but on the other hand, you still have the frat houses and you mm-hmm. know fairly kind of bawdy behaviour going on as well. Right, uh, and uh, I guess it's not coming from them; it's coming from a from the sort of you know, the liberal students, you know, the feminists. But
3: the... but all that all, all of that body behaviour is getting cut back as well. I mean, there was a time for most of my career there was this sort of like uh, Victorian schizophrenia, uh, to use a politically incorrect term, where uh, on the one hand, if you if, if, you if know, a man were to say something that could be um, in any way, even if it's a painful reading, construed to be sexist, you know, that that could be something that could get them in trouble. Whereas if something was, was considered to be sex positive, something, in other words, something that was celebrating you know, um, the enjoyment of sex, then that was completely protected on campus. And you just had to figure out what switch had been turned on. Now it seems, and I mean, my first book was nearly called The New Victorians, because I see not subtle similarities between attitudes about, um, uh, about speech between this era and, and the old uh, Victorian era, both in, in Britain and the U.S., but you are seeing people who even are saying anti-racist things, who are saying pro-sex things. Getting in trouble in the past couple of years because apparently that you're not allowed to talk about things at all, and, and this is a natural progression. You, you can't make maintain these contradictions forever. The hope, of course, was that the contradictions would be resolved in the favor of well, you know, we can't really have this sex positive versus uh, body joke distinction, so let's just let let's just stop act, acting like so uptight about things. They've gone the other direction. Um, it's like no, we're doubling down on untighten- uptightness. Uptightness will set us free. The more we restrict speech, the more protected we are as a society the safer people will feel it's a complete illusion and it's and it's often used tactically and for and for grandstanding and I think it's ending us up in a very uh, a very sad place where people's careers can be ruined for quotes oftentimes taken out of context or you know a one-time joke uh that, that can that uh, that uh, can end someone's career often also taken out of context
0: yeah yeah well we've obviously that's that's very much in the news with Tim Hunt's yeah sort of forced resignation from UCL but a case in America that's, that I keep, every time I read about it I just, yeah. just get shocked is that of Laura Kipnis. Sure. So can you explain what happened there?
3: So the Laura Kipnis case and, and, and to provide some background I've been doing this since 2001 and you n- need to understand that professors get in trouble for violating the anti-discrimination act called Title IX that was originally intended just to make sure that universities admitted women, which is absolutely completely correct. But it's morphed into this hostile environment mentality that makes uh, that, that, that means that you can say something critical um, of feminism or in this case of Title IX and get in trouble. And I have seen dozens and dozens of cases, if not hundreds and hundreds of cases like this over, o- over the years. A lot of times professors don't want to come forward. A lot of times students will just accept the fact that they've been punished. But, but Laura Kipnis did the world, world a real favor, so I'll explain the case a little bit. Laura Kipnis is a very famous, outspoken feminist. She is very much against what she sees as this um, infantilization um, of students, inherent in, in some aspects of modern feminism and inherent in Title IX. And one of the things she was complaining about um, in an article... In the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is you know the most widely read journal uh, when it comes to uh, issues on, on college campuses in the United States, she was complaining about the fact that uh, a blanket rule saying that, uh, that uh, professors can never date students under any circumstances was infantilizing and partially she pointed out that I know people who are the children of, of professors who after their professional relationship ended married students um, and it also she also pointed out how different it is when you're talking about graduate students in some cases a, a teacher's assistant um, can be younger than the, t- the, the students that they're teaching so the idea that this is absolutely and always verboten she says places students in a position of being a, a, eternally treated as if they're children so she wrote this article And then there was massive blowback and a Title IX investigation of her brought by students who claimed that she had gotten some relatively minor facts in the piece wrong um, and claimed that it was retaliation against their their filing of Title IX. Now, the thing that really sends all this stuff into overdrive is the fact that the American uh, Department of Education, particularly the Office of Civil Rights of the Department of Education, has gotten very aggressive, uh, unfortunately, during the Obama administration. And they've set up a situation where universities um, are incentivized and feel as if they're forced to overreact to any filing of a claim of discrimination even if that claim of discrimination would flatly violate the American First Amendment, which, of course, legally speaking, it can't do because the First Amendment is part of the Constitution. It trumps everything, but tell that to the Department of Education. So in this case, they launched an extensive investigation of clearly protected speech. So it's ironically, someone who wrote an article critical of Title IX was brought up on charges of (laughs) violating Title IX, and it was only... Uh, and I really don't think the university would have backed off as quickly as it had if Kipnis had not been brave and smart enough to fight this out in the pages of the Chronicle of Higher Education. Most professors aren't willing to do this. But the main takeaway that people have to understand is I see cases like this all the time. The only thing that makes Kipnis' case different was, one, it was a pretty stupid of them to target someone who's a very well-known feminist uh, because it just it seems ridiculous on its face. But also just the fact that she was willing to fight it in public.
0: That takes us on to sort of the broader picture about where this comes from because you're talking there about the Obama administration mm-hmm. you're talking about the university um, administrations as well why have they got into this position where they're clamping down on free speech so much and also apparently giving students so much leverage to kind of complain about uh, academics it seems like the, the, the whole idea of the is collapsed, they've given up on the idea of academic freedom, why is that?
3: Well, I have a pretty disturbing theory in freedom from speech, um, and uh, that, that, that's the whole point of the book, is that I, on a broad picture, I think that generally as a society becomes more comfortable, and they have more opportunities to surround themselves in echo chambers that reflect their own beliefs, which is describes the society we live in. As you can expect to be freer from uh, more boredom and physical discomfort, uh, and for that matter emotional discomfort, people come to expect a certain level of intellectual comfort as if it were a right. So I see this as more of a global phenomenon, I, I see this as like a, a problem almost akin to obesity in the sense that the more easy, easy access you have to, uh, to, 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 to calories, the fatter you get, the more access you have to comfort, the more you expect to always be comfortable. And so you end up seeing this complete lack of proportion when it comes to, uh, you know, minor slights are, are turned into microaggressions, For you know, for example. So I see this as a natural human tendency to want to be more comfortable that has to be fought. And, it would no, and it, so you end up having this tension between... This idea of uh, everything is getting better, so you know I, I agree with some of the uh, you know, optimists like Steve Pinker and 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 the uh, Andrew McCaffey, uh, Second Machine Age, who write about how you know, so many things are getting better. But I believe that these are what I call problems of comfort. That essentially, as everything else gets better there's a certain category of things that are going to get worse. And I think part of that is we're, we're going to become more uptight, more difficult, less able to deal with pluralism, frankly. So that that's the big picture answer. The smaller picture answer is that universities in the U.S., at least, have become incredibly bureaucratized. They're terrified of legal liability. The Department of Education has become very aggressive on policing harassment and harassment uh, defined so broadly that it does violate the Constitution. I mean, this is how bad it is. There have been more than three dozen lawsuits against largely harassment-based lawsuits since 1989. Every single one of them has been uh, uh, struck down in a court of law, yet as far as we can tell at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, 55% 55% of universities maintain laughably unconstitutional speech codes. So we have this serious legal problem, uh, we have this fear of liability, but then, frankly, uh, you know, political correctness, uh, people thought it died back in the 90s, and that's nonsense. Meanwhile, also, while I'm here, I, one thing that I do find, I used to find adorable and now I find horrifying, is that my, my, my mother's British, and I, and my father's a Russian refugee who grew up in Yugoslavia, and I've spent a lot of time in Europe. And if there was one thing that drove me insane, was constantly being told, by Europeans it's like oh this crazy political correctness thing you have in the US it's so it's so wacky and I'm always like you're you're, you're kidding yourselves the political correctness in there, the idea that, that Europe does not have political correctness is utter and complete nonsense and the past couple of years particularly in Britain have, have really shown that to be true particularly on campuses
0: so you t- talk about this as a a symptom of wealth. As well. mm-hmm. So short of, you know, impoverishing the country <laughs> or starting a world war, right? what can we do about this?
3: Well, one thing that we can do, and that's one of the reasons why I'm really happy to talk to you, uh, is that I think that uh, uh, training people in the art of debate is essential. It's very hard to, uh, after you've taken a, an argument from someone else's point of view, to uh, continue to reduce that person to a caricature of societal evil. That anyone who disagrees with me is, of course, a racist troglodyte bigot um, as soon as you actually realize that there might be more than one point of view. So I do think training people in the art of debate is good. We also have to uh, recruit the comedians to point out, yeah, laughing at things is good. Um, I think that, honestly, better experiences with genuine pluralism, particularly along class lines, wouldn't hurt. Um, I th- the one thing that I, that I think that I find so stunning about the, some of the censors on uh, American college campuses, and as best I can tell uh, in, in, in the u k too is that they are uh, they tend to be very upper class kids who who are maintaining this i I went from uh, you know being first generation American a you know, very humble background to going to Stanford law School, and I was suddenly surrounded by very rich kids and I was constantly upsetting them by pointing out that they really wanted to impose. Upper class white American norms on everybody else, and they didn't understand that that's what they were doing. It's like, no, you want to impose your version of the way right thinking people should think. That is anti pluralism, and I do think that better exposure to people from different classes, from people with different modes of expression, um, can actually go a long way to helping this. I I think that, but I do think fostering debate, I do think comedy can help. But we need constant training um, in 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 getting out of our you know uptight bubbles and hearing uh, uh, and and reading and, po- and and listening to people who, who we passionately disagree with but there's a lot that has to be done since i do see this as something like a force
0: okay well good luck with all your work on <laughs> <in> this <laughs> you have got an uphill struggle oh though. absolutely well, thanks very much for your time, Gregory, you
3: thanks for having me earlier
0: this week the institute of ideas hosted its first university in one day Inspired by our annual residential weekend, the Academy, the aim was to give 16 to 18-year-olds a taste of the inspiring ideas that await as they move into university life. The theme of this first event was Man is the Measure of All Things, and examined philosophy, science and the arts from the Renaissance through to the Enlightenment. As a taster, here is a lecture given by Sebastian Morello, a lecturer and trainer at the Centre for Catholic Formation in London, on Giovanni Pico della Marandola's 1486 Manifesto for the Renaissance. Oration on the Dignity of Man.
4: Okay, um, so why am I talking about this bloke who died about five centuries ago? Well, really, because I think he's amazing. I think he's an incredible, incredible man, and uh, I hope uh, I give you some insight into that. His name was Prince. Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, Prince and Count of Concordia. Uh, He was born in 1463, at the beginning of, I wouldn't say the Renaissance, but certainly the kind of uh, philosophical flourishing of the Renaissance. And what he wrote, the Oration on the Dignity of Man, um, is one of many works, and uh, it is very much considered to be a sort of mandate for the, the Renaissance humanism. Um, When I say renaissance humanism, we don't mean humanism in the the modern term of sort of secular humanism. Renaissance humanism was, in a certain sense, a pious humanism, a Christian humanism, which reintroduced into the consciousness of uh, the European milieu a sense that we need to marvel. We need to marvel at the human person because he is the summit of God's creation, basically. And really, all of the great, I would argue, all of the great Renaissance humanists after Pico looked to him, and particularly to this work, The Oration, as a sort of exemplar uh, of of what they were trying to do. From an early age, people were amazed at his learning and his ability to memorize huge amounts of literature. Um, He picked up languages very quickly, Uh, From a very young age, he spoke uh, perfect classical uh, Latin as well as Greek. He knew most of the great humanists in Italy and had lifelong friendships with them, as well as people who were anti-humanists, who were very against the uh, humanist movement. Uh, An example of that would be Savonarola, who was mentioned earlier, of whom Pico became a great disciple, particularly towards the end of his life. After studying canon law at Bologna, he studied at the universities of Padua and later Paris, which were the the two uh, Padua... Bologna was very well known for law, and particularly canon law, whereas Padua and Paris were very well known as as the great centres of Aristotelian philosophy. While he was at these universities, he also learned Hebrew and Arabic, although his Hebrew was never that good. He needed a lot of help in translating texts. But he learned these in order to read the Muslim and Jewish commentators on Aristotle. Uh, At this time, he also became fascinated with Kabbalah, um, the the Jewish mysticism of interpreting the, the Holy Scriptures. Probably at the University of Paris, Pico started to draw together the 900 theses, the 900 conclusions, of which the oration on the Dignity of Man is actually just an introduction, um, but became much more famous than the the theses themselves. Uh, Later in Florence, he met a man called Marsilio Ficino, who was a priest, uh, a brilliant Neoplatonist philosopher who was studying Plato and Plotinus um, and that whole school of philosophy. uh, There were ...frictions between the Neoplatonist school and and the Aristotelian school. So Pico very much accustomed himself with both schools of philosophy. Um, And he also became a close friend of Lorenzo de' Medici... uh, ...one of the wealthiest and most powerful men in Italy... ...and a great patron of philosophers as well as artists. Lorenzo encouraged and protected Pico for the rest of his life... ...even when Pico decided to run off with the wife of Lorenzo's cousin and uh, Lorenzo's cousin decided that he would uh, kill Pico, and Lorenzo actually intervened and said leave him alone, uh, although Pico never recovered from the uh, injuries that Lorenzo's cousin dealt him he really beat him up actually uh, Pico was an enormous uh, influence on both the Italian and the Northern Renaissance this, the, these, uh, the Northern Renaissance came a little bit later and Uh, including people in our own country. So um, people like John Collett, who was, I think, the Bishop of London, uh, Erasmus, who was mentioned earlier, and Thomas More, who actually uh, transcribed a biography of Pico and translated many of his letters and shorter works and so forth. So Pico was fascinated with all of the traditions. He studied all of the philosophical and religious traditions that he could. And this is essentially because Pico believed that truth was both objective and a unity. He he wanted to have a holistic understanding of what reality was. Uh, There's a very interesting uh, line in the oration, um, which I'll quote here. Uh, The human vocation, he says, the human vocation, so the vocation which is common to all of us, is a mystical vocation that has to be realised following a three-stage way, which comprehends, necessarily, moral transformation, intellectual research, and final perfection in the identity with absolute reality. And, of course, if you follow the Platonic and Neoplatonist understanding of what is meant by absolute reality, Pico here is talking about God. So he thinks that you need to order your life become a good person, uh, become an admirable person, um, and then you need to equip yourself with a wisdom tradition, and you need to become a wise man, uh, intellectual research. And it's only at that moment that you can embark, because for Vico, at that point, your mind, because you're becoming wise, your mind is becoming in some way similar or or harmonious or co-natural with the mind of God and so you can actually uh, be identified with God. And he then states, immediately after saying this, the paradigm is universal because it can be traced in every tradition. So, so he is looking at all of the religious and philosophical traditions in order to, to come to a, a deeper understanding of this absolute truth. Now, he doesn't think, however, that all truths are equal, or that all truth is equal. Um, he, he, in this sort of modern way that we like to talk today, you know, you have your truth, I have my truth, he wouldn't really let you get away with that. He would, he would say, well, no, actually, there is absolute truth, and if your truth and my truth are not uh, in agreement, then one of us is wrong, or both of us is wrong. And so, um, because essentially he wants to get to something objective which, for Pico, of course, is Christ himself. So he wants to get to the summit of the Christian life via many paths, and these paths are not necessarily Christian, which is how we find he actually gets in trouble with the church later on. If at the heart of the Christian mystery is the eternal Logos, the word of, of God, which Logos, of course, is Greek intelligibility basically, loosely speaking. Um, he's talking about the mind of God then, then we must be able to find God's re- revelation his his intelligibility everywhere. And this is why he, he has this very broad search uh, and intellectual inquiry. So Pico's humanism is found to be in continuity, I think, with the medieval tradition. There's, there, there is an argument that the Renaissance marks a breakaway from the medieval tradition, and I very much be in agreement with Professor Hudson, you know, that, that actually we can see a serious uh, continuity uh, here, um, because the, the principle of medieval philosophy was to say that God is reason, God is eternal reason, and therefore uh, there is a real intelligibility to God, and we can explore him and explore his mystery. Um, So Pico's humanism, then, to sum up, is characterised by really three principles. The human person is God's most remarkable creature and worthy of all admiration. The mystery of not... uh, He he wants to emphasise not really just how God has revealed himself to us in in the uh, Jewish and Christian traditions, uh, according to Pico, uh, but also um, he wants to emphasise how man searches for God. So not just God search for man, but how man searches for God. And, and it's, it's interesting, he actually places into the mouth of God in the oration, Thou art confined by no bounds, and thou wilt fix limits of nature for thyself. So he's saying, you are self-determining, you can choose, you can choose to, to search. That life is given meaning within the context of a developing search for wisdom. So, he writes his uh, introduction to the 900 Theses, which are called The Conclusions in Philosophy, Magic and Theology. Uh, Remember the word magic. This is also why the the Catholic hierarchy, and particularly the Inquisition, started to get a bit worried by him at this moment. Pope Innocent VIII, um, who was worried very much by Pico's interest in magic, didn't actually allow the debate to go forward. Pico was basically saying, here are 900 conclusions that I've come to, and I want to defend them publicly with anyone who will challenge them. And the Pope said, well, no, because I think you're a heretic, so you can't, you can't do this. This obviously worried him. He fleed to France and was eventually arrested and sent back. But uh, again, Lorenzo de' Medici steps in and says... I'm going to look after him, I'm going to protect him, no one's allowed to touch him. And as Lorenzo was very rich, everyone agreed. Pico was still considered suspect, though, and it was only until Alexander VI, the Borgia Pope, the infamous Pope, actually he said, well, I think Pico's all right, and he removed all of the ecclesial censures. Um, At this point, Pico seems to have said, well, actually, I want to be much more orthodox, and he goes to Savonarola, this Dominican priest, and the Dominican says, uh, be my disciple and make preparations to become a monk yourself. And he does, and it seems that Pico's secretary, uh, this is the, uh, what seems to have happened, uh, did not like this. Uh, particularly as Savonarola was himself actually quite controversial. Um, and so his secretary poisoned him. Um, in in 1494, and he died. So in the oration, just very quickly, uh, just to cover this, Pico wants to inspire a sense of awe and wonder. He wants to spur people on for a quest for wisdom. Um, This isn't a word we use very often today. He actually thinks that the reason for human existence is to become wise, is to be formed in wisdom. And uh, it's very interesting. And he says, "You can choose this. You are self-determining." He doesn't have any time for this notion of we're completely predestined and we're, you know, our future is written for us. He even uh, it's a, there's an amazing quote here. He says, "If you see a man given over to his belly, it's a plant, not a man that you see. If you see anyone delivered over to the senses." wanting to experience some sensual satisfaction at the time. He says it's a brute, it's not a man that you see. If you come upon a philosopher, winnowing out all things by right reason, he is a heavenly and not an earthly animal. And finally, if you come upon a contemplator, banished to the innermost places of the mind, he is a divinity clothed in human flesh. So he really thinks we can choose this for ourselves. You choose. Do you want to be a brute, a plant, uh, a, a sort of lonely creature, or do you want to be godlike? And he thinks that you can actually decide on this. Uh, so, and, and what's very interesting is he, he thinks that philosophy, if you study philosophy, is obviously the the search for wisdom, the study of wisdom, to be a philosopher, to be a lover of wisdom, he he says that you can gain a certain autonomy, because your decisions, your life, the way that you live, uh, the the, the things that you think about are informed, and they're shaped by wisdom. And so I'll conclude with this lovely quote here. Um, He says, philosophy herself has taught me. To weigh things rather by my own conscience than by the judgments of others. And to consider not so much whether I should be badly spoken of as whether I myself should say or do anything bad. I am a law unto myself because I am wise. Thanks very much. Thank you very much.
0: Last weekend saw the national final debating matters, the Institute's competition for six formers, which was held at the British Library in London. To tell us all about the weekend, I'm joined by the newest member of the Institute's staff, Nadia Butt. So, Nadia, your first time at the DM final as part of the team, how was it?
5: It was really good. I loved it. Um, I've been twice before as an alumnus of the competition. So, being part of the team for the first time has been incredible. A lack of sleep was not helpful, but it was great.
0: Everybody seemed to have a great time, so... I hope so. <laughs> so, the, the final debate took place on Sunday. Yeah. So, who took part in that, and what were they debating?
5: So, the final debate was between Douglas Academy in Scotland, in Milngay, as I've been told to pronounce it, and Beckford School, which is in Bingley, so they were the winners from the Yorkshire region, on doping in sport, which is obviously a very... Contemporary contentious issue at the moment With um, all the allegations with Alberta Salazar So yes, they battled it out And overall uh, The winner were Beckford School um, The second Yorkshire winners in a row
0: Very good, very good And what were your favourite moments During the course of the weekend?
5: Um, I think on On the Saturday Once everybody was going And all the debates were running it was good for me to see and sort of take a step back and think. Oh, actually, this is exactly why I love debating matters because everyone was getting so involved and so into it. And it's the it's the sort of twenty minutes after the debate when you can hear everyone in the audience still chattering on about the debates and why they're like, "Oh, this this argument was rubbish," or "Oh, I'm really sad I didn't get my uh, question in," or "Oh, they should have involved this." It, it's it's sort of the continuation of the debates after they've taken place it's it's nice to see that passion and enthusiasm for debating and for the ideas themselves and the arguments um that I really I really like to see
0: yeah I was I was on a judging panel for one of the semi-finals on repatriating um artifacts from western museums and one of my fellow judges was Nick Ross the TV presenter. Uh, he was uh, impressed as was I with yeah. just the quality of the, the questions coming from the audience. Yeah. Uh, you could say there was a lot of kids had prepared for that debate. Of or even if they hadn't prepared for the debate, they were really engaged with it.
5: Yeah, and I think it's easy it's easy to get involved from from the audience because you know, as you say a lot of them had actually prepared for that debate but were unfortunately knocked out. So I think that made the more uh, spurred on to uh, want to get involved and say, "Oh, we've we'll prepared for this side of the argument, so we're going to mention this," and it's it's a good way for for them to get involved because they've prepared for it.
0: So it all starts again now there is no rest for the wicked Um, and schools are now applying to take part in the 2015-16 competition so if they're interested how do they get involved
5: so we have application forms available online so at debatingmatters.com and you can uh, apply for your region and uh, fill out the form and send it over to us and we'll get you down for a round
0: and I strongly recommend any school that's never taken part in debating matters to get involved because it is great fun and a really massive learning experience. Definitely. Nadia But thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. To hear more of our podcasts or to subscribe to them, visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast.